so uh after much flaking by me which i apologize for and i will hold myself accountable um because we, as we all know um, malcolm is the the hardworking. uh i want to i just say house spouse and i'm the right, absent, okay. i'm the absentee father yeah um and so we have uh we have I don't know if it's something a little different, but it's it's definitely more recent history, but like a different period of history than we normally talk about. Usually, when we're talking about history, it goes back either you know World War One to about end of Vietnam, or it's very recent history. But today, we're bringing you something from one of those weird historical blind spots that everyone seems to get recently. Um, of course, we're talking about. The Russian Federation at the turn of the century, and specifically about the Russian deep state and how it operates. And yeah, I'm, uh, I'm really excited. This has been a, something that we've been planning on doing for a very long time. I also, I also think we were planning this before February of this year. Um, I think so. I think and now we, it's got extra relevant. And now, yeah, it's become even more relevant. So we figured why not get the monkey off of our back and yeah bring you guys some of that historical content rather than just current events and all that so i think today we're going to start with some of the basics a nice little timeline of turn of the century um, vladimir putin's rise to power we're gonna you know dive into what the russian deep state and how, and how its whole state apparatus works um, and then we're going to get into sort of the mythology of uh, the, the Wagner group um, yeah. and sort of take a deep dive on what that what it is, um, what it's purported to be. And so we're going to that's uh, yeah, we're, this is going to be a multi part episode. We're going to. Yeah. Leave so in the future, we're going to dive deeper into sort of the Russian 90s um, and how sort of the Russia that we see today. Uh, or like a counterintelligence state sort of came to be how putin came to be we're also going to dive more into the wagner group and do an episode just about them um we're going to do an episode about putin so but for now uh i just want to or we just want to have an episode that's yeah as as declan said sort of give you the basics of the deep state uh as well as a little bit about sort of the, the direct events that sort of lead to putin taking power uh, in a specific way it does. So just a bit of historical context here. Uh, the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. Uh, many states left. One of them was Russia, which became the Russian Federation. Um, throughout the 90s, they had what Russians call a warm civil war, uh, which means there was a lot of violence, um, lots of you know political violence, ethnic violence, that never actually escalated to a full frontline shooting war, but came pretty close a few times. Um, and one of the... I think probably the most famous uh, ethnic conflict uh, in the Russian Federation was that of Chechnya, uh, which is a small Muslim uh, republic in the South Caucasus that borders uh, Georgia um, and uh, is currently uh, an autonomous republic of the Russian Federation, but in the 90s uh, broke away uh, at first somewhat peacefully. Um, and then there were several wars about it, and now it's part of Russia again. When when the ethnic conflict has filtered its way down to like, you know, World War Two kids making memes, that's when you know that it's the most well known one. You know, it's 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 the sort of go to, um, it, before like prior to the Syrian civil war, and obviously prior to the invasion of Ukraine, it was the sort of Russian Federation's 
major military campaign that everyone would think of. Not that people spent a ton of time, you know, poring over what the Russian Federation was capable of. Um, but this was sort of its, its test of its counterinsurgency and yeah, how, how the Russian Federation would deal with the situation that the U S thought it was in at the turn of the century. Yeah. And so there were two Chechen wars. Uh, there was the first one and the second one. Uh, the first one was, uh, overseen by Russia's first president, uh, Boris Yeltsin, and it was an abject failure. Um, Russia's armed forces were, were corrupt. They were badly trained. They were full of conscripts. Um, they still relied on like outdated Soviet models that hadn't really updated a to the times and b to Russia's situation. Um, so it was a very bloody failure, um, leading Chechnya to become independent. Uh, in its independence, its sort of civic nationalism gave way to Islamic nationalism. Uh, jihadists took over and sort of became fixated on this idea of separating all of the Muslim areas of the South Caucasus from Russia um, and creating their own so uh, we sort of start here, yeah, and, and as Declan says, there's a lot of memeing about the Chechens as sort of this idea of Chechnya as this kind of Russian Sparta, especially now that they're taking part in the war in Ukraine. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to, I don't, I, I, to put the sociologist gloves on for a second, it's, it's, I don't want to immediately jump to the buzzword of Orientalism, but it's very much like the coverage is like, look at these sort of primitive warriors right it's yeah, like they go a lot a of a lot race. of the reporting on the chechen military forces i mean uh, you know if you're getting it from the kiev independent they're calling them orcs yeah. um but a lot of it is this sort of mythology of like a almost like a warrior people and yeah mm -hmm. like you said like a sparta or like you know like even i mean and again this is going back to um nazi ideas of like the God, what was what was the Slavic hordes, right? Yeah. And how, yeah, yeah. So Which presenting made a big comeback in the last six months. Yeah. So presenting the the Chechen military and its arm and you know its military as this like yeah warrior horde more than an actual modernized military when you know they have armored units they have you know some degree of of air units like they're not it's not a bunch of guys with, with beards and AKs running around. Like it's, it's very, it's a trained. I mean, sometimes force. it is, but that's not sometimes it is. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And it's, it's kind of a, a sad story. Like I, I'm somewhat sympathetic, I guess, to the first, the first attempt that Chechnya had, um, where like it was just, I, I won't call them like liberal nationalists, but there were just guys who wanted independence. Um, but the second yeah, they wanted it, out of the Russian Federation in the nineties, and in the nineties, which, like, which is fair enough. Fair enough, yeah. Um, so uh, it goes really bad for them when they get independence. Yeah, jihadist groups uh, take over, uh, there's a regime instituted, and uh, the state, in many ways, kind of loses control of these groups. And of course, there's you know infiltration from mujahideen types, uh, Turkish gray wolves and all sorts of nasty groups. Uh, so on the 5th of August of 1999, Chechnya begins an infiltration and invasion of Dagestan, which is a neighboring uh, Muslim region of South, the South Caucasus in, in Russia, perhaps the only region more conservatively Muslim in the world uh, uh, than Chechnya at this point, uh, most famous, I guess, for producing the best pound-for-pound pound MMA fighter in human history. Um, so... Obviously, Russia doesn't react well, um, and 
so the war kind of restarts. There's fighting, there's, there's bombing in the Chechen capital of Grozny. On the 9th of August, 1999, this guy, Sergei Stevashin, uh, is dismissed um, as prime minister of Russia and the FSB chief, uh, or the Federal Security Battalions, uh, Russia's version of essentially the FBI, uh, a gray figure, virtually unknown to the Russian public, becomes prime minister, and his name is Vladimir Putin. Just to be clear, just in case our listeners are not aware, uh, Russia is one of those countries that has a, or at least at this time, had a president and prime minister. Yes. So the you know prime minister is elected separately from the president. But yes, Vladimir Putin, 9th of August, 1999, becomes prime minister of the Russian Federation. Uh, and oh, sorry, go ahead. This, I mean, you know, this obviously is where our story starts. I mean, before he became prime minister, like you said, he was virtually unknown. The most that people know is that he was doing stuff for the FSB in Germany. Oh, well, that KGB was, in Germany, yeah. Or sorry, yeah, KGB. And in then Germany. that so was well, his, the story of, then, of Putin, which we can get into detail, but essentially very quickly, he was a big KGB guy in East Germany. Um, then after the wall fell, he goes back to Russia. Uh, he gets close to both Gorbachev and Yeltsin, um, becomes a big liberal reformer in St. Petersburg, um, or Leningrad at the time, and then St. Petersburg, uh, becomes close to the first mayor of St. Petersburg after the collapse, uh, and then at a certain point there sort of gives up on his ideals and starts becoming a really corrupt power figure. Um, at that point, uh, then he starts to rise in the ranks of the FSB, um, becomes in charge of it, gets close to Yeltsin, and then becomes prime minister. So on the 22nd of August of 1999, Chechen forces are routed uh, in Dagestan and withdraw back into Chechnya. And on the 25th, um, the Russian military begins bombings in Chechnya. Right. I mean, the, you know, specifically a lot of U.S. Air Force propaganda revolves around the idea of precision bombing. Mm. And how, oh, you can, you know, you can pick a room in someone's house and drop a bomb there and destroy that room. But... You can. First of all, you can. Second of all, the Air Force never does that. Mm. But setting that aside, this was not a precision bombing campaign. No. This no. was very this was very much, you know, a sort of U.S. and Iraq style, oh, well, it's a, it's a military target. You know, it's a big factory. Mm -hmm. military target regardless of what it is just you know waging war as you do in the 21st century just going for all infrastructure well unless you're the russian federation in ukraine at which point it's stupidly aborting infrastructure um but uh yeah i mean maybe that's about who they view as people and who they don't this this puts uh, you know obviously this puts the chechen forces on the back foot and so on the 31st of August, 1999, there is a mall bombing in Moscow. So one person is killed, dozens are injured. And the FSB goes on to claim that a Dagestani Salafi jihadist group was responsible. But the group that they blame never takes credit. So, you know, as I'm sure you can all infer, it's sort of one of those it's who suspicious. knows situations. Yeah. Right. It's, it's entirely possible that it was them and they didn't claim it. Or it could be a false flag to justify this continued involvement. But again, mm. it's uh, we're going to chalk it up to a who knows situation because we don't have that kind of security clearance. Yeah. So on the 4th of September 1999, there's another bombing in Butnath in Dagestan. 64 people are killed, 133 are injured. On the 9th of September, 
from Hutchinson in sorry Chattanooga in Moscow there's a bombing uh, an apartment bombing in which 94 people are killed and 249 are injured and finally on the 13th of September uh, in 1999 on Kasichkoye Highway in Moscow an apartment is bombed in which 118 people are killed and 200 are injured uh, on the 13th of September as well a bomb is defused uh, and a warehouse containing several tons of explosives and six timing devices are found in Moscow. Uh, and also on the same day, the Russian Duma, Parliament Speaker Gennady uh, Seleznyov, makes an announcement about the bombing of an apartment building in the city of Volgogansk that took place only a few days uh, earlier. Um, that, well, well, we'll get into it. That's a bit sus. Um, so on the 16th uh, of September, um, uh, sorry, uh, on the 13th of September, uh, there's this bombing in Volgogansk and Rostov in which 18 people are killed, and then it's the 16th when this guy makes his announcement, which we'll talk about. Um, and on the 23rd of September, um, an apartment bomb is found in the city of Ryazan. So uh, the interior minister of the Russian Federation, uh, Vladimir Rusailo, announces that police prevented a terrorist act, and Vladimir Putin praises the vigilance of citizens. Um, and Grozny, the capital of Chechnya, begins to be bombed by Russian aerospace forces before it was military targets and at the point when it starts getting to be bombing cities. Yeah, so so at this point, the two two men and a woman, um, you know, Chechen girl bossing, mm-hmm. um, who planted the bomb in Ryazan are arrested by the local police. Um, and then they produce FSB ID cards and are released on the orders of the director of the FSB, Nikolai Petrushev, in Moscow. He announces that it was a quote, training exercise to test police response. Yeah. Uh, by the way, this guy is, is still still a big figure in the Russian government. He's that's just head of security council. Basically setting right up now. setting up a, an apartment bomb and then going, oh, just kidding, it was just a prank, bro. Yeah. Is really, really interesting. <laughs> Especially in the middle of, you know, an actual bombing campaign, right? Yeah. So on the 1st of October 1999, the Second Chechen War begins in earnest as Russian forces cross into the boundaries uh, of the Chechen Republic um, of Ishkaria, and uh, fighting begins sort of on land. Um, And on the 31st of December 1999, the Russian president, Boris Yeltsin, suddenly and unexpectedly resigns, and by default, Vladimir Putin becomes acting president. I mean, I I think the thing with, you know, it was a sudden resignation not because you know everyone expected him to stick around i mean at this point russia had been under boris yeltsin for more than eight years it it Mm -hmm. surely was not a surprise that he left but the the timing of it was really what threw people well he so yeah he was facing some corruption allegations but i just i i want to no no it wasn't like a like a boris johnson type thing where it's like oh he'll resign any day now it was just a it just came out of nowhere i also want to note that um, the 9th of August is when Vladimir Putin becomes prime minister. Before this point, almost nobody knows who he is. And then on the 31st of December, just a few months later, he becomes president of the Russian Federation. And be, obviously because of the way the constitution works, president's like the big, the big figure there, like France. Um, so on the 6th of February of 2000, uh, just a month later almost, uh, Grozny falls to Russian forces after a tremendously bloody battle. Uh, on the 29th of February, Russia declares victory in the Chechen War. And on the 26th of March 2000, a month later, Vladimir Putin wins an unprecedented first round victory 
in the Russian presidential election. So, so that's yeah. General that's our that's our timeline of Putin's rise to power. Um, it I don't know. The, the the timing of everything is very convenient for him. Mm-hmm. You know, going from FSB that would be the equivalent of like, well, I don't not necessarily like. It's not as clear cut as like CIA FBI in terms of domestic foreign, but like, yeah. imagine the CIA director now becoming president of the United States in like a year and a half. Not even. Yeah. In like a few months. So it would. So it was very much like. Again, it's hard to say how deep, and if there even is a conspiracy. I mean, you can, you can always make the argument that it was just happenstance, that he happened to be the FSB chief and get appointed a prime minister, and then you know, less like a year later, y- Yeltsin resigns. Or you could even argue president. the more realistic version of those events, which is that he was a guy who is very clever and wanted power and took advantage of a situation yeah but but i think before before we start talking and start really like setting off the uh the algorithm flags to 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 nuke us before we start talking too much about the deep state i think we need to define sort of specifically what the the deep state is and how we're referring because we're not we're not going off in the alex jones way of it's like a an all-controlling state that runs the world and that that you know and is completely like kidnapping your children and whatever. yeah like that's not that that's not where we're going with this episode whatsoever it's just the term comes from turkey where th- there was a, a car crash in 1996 it was the susurluk incident definitely butchered that i i don't i don't know the language um i would apologize to all turks but for armenia it's in 1996, a, there was a failed car crash that, you know, contained the leader of Turkey's most prominent fascist organization, the Grey Wolves. Which, by the, the way, for- we're helping the Chechens, like, just to let yeah. you know. Yeah. The former Istanbul chief of police, one of Turkey's top models, and a sitting MP from the government, who was the only survivor. Um, it's very much like that, um, the car bombing in Washington, D.C., that was orchestrated by that guy, um, Michael oh, the Townley. the Chilean guy, or the or yeah, the yeah. Ch- the assassination of the Chilean guy. Yeah, where it's kind of like, oh well, good thing this one guy almost, you know, this one guy survived and they got him for it. Yeah. Um, but the scandal goes deeper. We can't get into it in this episode. We don't have the time, sadly. But it's kind of what we mean by deep state is like, like what were all those people doing together? Yeah. What like sort of a secret and you know most of the time operating outside of the law sort of faceless mass that exists behind the government acts in ways that the public doesn't really see never really finds out about um and you know there, there's sort of two kinds that we're we're getting in that at least that of, we, we should think about yeah yeah so you know you have the chinese or the the british deep state where it's this huge bureaucracy right that they need to just run the country as like just as consistency like they're they're the fallback they you know the the ideologues might come and go and all the politicians but it's their job to you know keep everything running yeah in china that would be party apparatchiks in the uk that would be the civil service yeah so like even like it's 
you know, we're not going to get on here and say, oh, the head of the NHS is part of the deep state. But it's like very much these like apolitical government service positions where it's like, yeah, you might be in charge of the healthcare service today and then you're in charge of the security apparatus tomorrow. Like it's it's very much st- like maintaining the state outside of elections. Yeah. Making sure and that everything that's... is within the right window. I just I feel like that's an important thing to say when we're talking about okay you know here's a deep state because I just I, I just want to be clear that we're not insane conspiracy theorists and that we're not saying no. that it's this like necessarily sinister thing but there are sinister deep states uh, yeah. obviously people think about America a lot right they think about their intelligence agencies the NSA spying on people you know obviously the vast majority of Americans and probably just people who know about it are pretty convinced that there was American government involvement in the Kennedy assassination, right? Things like that. But of course, today we're also talking about Russia, which functions in a a pretty similar way. And so this is where I wanted to sort of pivot into this term that we're going to use for not only the rest of this episode, but probably the rest of this series, which is this idea of a silovic or plural siloviki. Um, So there is no corruption in Russia. Corruption is what happens in places like America or Ukraine, right, where wealthy people outside the government use their power and their influence to influence it, right, to to push it along, to, to make the government do what they want. But in Russia, the businessmen, the politicians, the bureaucrats, they're all the same people. Yeah, right? I mean, we, we it's not that we invented the term to describe how it works over there, but the term oligarch is pretty much exclusively used to refer to... Russians and I think it I think that's accurate because in the United States you know as annoying as they are they had to have them be different people Mm -hmm. whereas in Russia I mean since the de-Stalinization process it's been a country run by these oligarchs that just yeah they're you know not they don't divest from any of their corporate interests obviously neither does anyone in the fucking US but that doesn't Mm -hmm. matter um you, they're not divested at all from corporate interests when they get into power. I mean, it's, yeah, it, it's it's funny to say there's no corruption in Russia, but yeah, when you're, when the the people like doing all the the economic activity are the same people running the country, then yeah, you're not corrupt. You're just acting in this in your own self interest. Yeah. So like, in a posi- like when you blur that line between like public service and you know private business ventures that may be considered corruption but if there's no line to begin with because mm-hmm. your entire the entire russian federation is just built on like a basically this capitalist land grab in the early 90s like yeah you it's not corrupt because it's the literally the foundation of your country yeah and so like putin is kind of a special and i think highly effective type of leader because in the 90s russia was corrupt there were oligarchs that had their own private armies but now, like, it's all centralized. And that's why he's been such an effective and such a long-lasting uh, dictator is simply because he's been able to centralize corruption, right? Yeah, and I, it, all, has, this, it this... all goes through him, Yeah, which, which you know, can complicate, if, can complicate things if you're one of those oligarchs. You know, if you get on his bad side, you're gone. And it's gone bad for a lot of people. And the amount of oligarchs yeah. has gone way down because it's... To, yeah, to, because for Putin, the oligarchs have to be the state. And if you want to exist outside the state, you have to exist outside of Russia. Yeah. yeah. Um, or exist outside of the, um, this mortal coil, yeah. if you will. Yeah, <laughs> exist outside of your 23rd floor window. 
Um, so, so yeah, getting back like, to this Telebek, right? So this word literally means, quote, a person of force. And so this means, you know, military and intelligence officers, police chiefs, uh, prosecutors. They can be high level. They can be low level. Uh, I, I'm now, uh, I've put in the notes that I have to promise you guys that we will do an episode about Natalia Poplodskaya soon um, because she is a fascinating figure in her own right. And the Russian government is completely run by Silovitsky. Putin himself is one, right? Former KGB, yep. obviously liberal and former bureaucrat, FSB officer, and now he's the president. Um, other famous figures like Sergei Shoigu, who's a defense minister, um, actually not a career Silovic. He was like a Communist Party guy. Uh, and then I think also a liberal reformer. Uh, he's a Buryat from uh, Buryat. Oh, no, he's Tuvan. Tuvan. So, you know, indigenous minority. I think he was a liberal reformer and a communist, but now he's a defense minister. Um, Nikolai Petrushev. So he was the one who, and we'll talk about him more, uh, and I think a lot of episodes, because this is a real fucked up figure. Um, he was the guy who was like, yeah, this was just a training exercise with the bombings. So yeah, former head yeah. of the FSB. He's like, oh yeah, guys, don't worry, they're with us. Yeah, um, he's the current head of Russia's Security Council. He's also Russia's essentially biggest hawk. Uh, a lot of people think he was like the number one guy pushing uh, Putin, who was like famously cautious to actually like go into Ukraine. Um, you know, he's a hardline anti-American. He and by the way, this is objectively true, but he espouses the idea that. Um, America has literally been at war with Russia for years, which is true. But again, that's like, he's a, an anti-American ideologue. Um, you've also got Igor Sechin, who is the head of Russia's biggest uh, state-owned oil company, Rosneft. And so this is the I thing, thought, right? Uh, I, is, is Rosneft bigger than... Um, Gazprom? Than, the, than Gazprom? No, is it's it? not. No, Gazprom is like the titan. Rosneft is not right. that big. But, but um, this is sort yeah, of the thing. Like, it's, it's state-owned, but this guy takes all the money. Yeah, it, it, again, like, in the United States, you have, you know, your head of the uh, the EPA or whatever. Like, you have the head of the agency that will have, like, close ties with the oil industry or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And it'll be, like, he'll go to fundraisers for them and, like, you know, and that'll be, his, that'll be like, it in America, right? Like, it'll be two people, one person putting up the sort of kayfabe of being in a governmental position, like, an elected or appointed governmental position mm -hmm. that gets rotated out. And then you have like the big oil CEOs that that everyone gets mad at. And you know, in Russia, there's no divide there. There those are the same guy. Yeah. And so I wanna note that like for a while this really worked for Russia. Like you can actually track every economic measure in Russia from like Putin taking over. And obviously that comes with the political stabilization, but like Things got so much better for everyone. Poverty went down. Economic prosperity went up. Um, economic inequality went down. You know, Russia's economy itself grew. And right. Well, like, I think you when can you, trace when that to political stabilization, but when, I think you when can you're, also trace that to this a bit. But it's when you're moving from like an act, like a scramble to get as much land and industry mm -hmm. as you possibly can in the early '90s, and when you compare that to like the almost functional russian state at this point like yeah that's it's it's a marked improvement i mean we're not saying things are lovely in russia because they're not no go back it's to still the quality of life quality of life is still not above where it was during the last years of the soviet union mm -hmm. um it's like just getting there now after this massive influx of of cash after the uh the soviet union fell apart yeah but yeah like this is a system that at some on some level works 
at least for the people that are in power. You know, it's, yeah. it's essentially turning Russia into a stable platform for investment. And, you know, that doesn't necessarily go hand in hand with invading other countries. Mm-hmm. But yeah. well, I was going to say, like, it's 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 long now for them now that they're cut off from so much of the world. And, and so I think that, you know, obviously in the short term, Russia is absolutely winning this economic war against the West. In the long term, this just means that they're just going to need to sell themselves to China even more. Yeah. Um, well, and, you know, that's which China is happy to do. And I'm sure Russia is happy to do it because China will let them have a backyard in Europe. But um, it's it's not something that will ever lead to economic sovereignty for Russia, yeah. which is tragic because it was probably Putin's goal when he was still a little bit, you know, idealistic when he took over, at least with China's takeover. Um, and now it's, it's never going to get it. Um, well, no, because I, I think, like, there's been so much writing done about, like, did the Soviet Union have the industrial capacity to compete? with the united states and with the rest of the world right like that's it's a hotly debated cold war history topic is like was there ever going to be any competition or does does did the soviet union just not have that capacity for it um and i think that at this stage that's kind of something we'll never know because the russian federation obviously as we just spent the last almost half hour telling you guys about is structured very differently and i think the Russian Federation is never going to be able to compete with the United States on its own at yeah. this stage, partially because it was the United States that kind of opened up the floodgates of that privatization. And that's not really, that's not something that you can, you know, you, you can't, can't put the genie back in the bottle. You can't put the, yeah, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. And also you can't really beat the U S at their own game no. when it comes to that, like privatized economy. I think no. if there was going to be a chance for Russia to compete with the United States in terms of economic production, it, they would have had to have. It would have had to have been some sort of socialist mode of production, or at least and I, continuation I think, Soviet Union, even with some right. sort of privatization. I will right. say, I, I, I think it, that the ship has sailed for yeah. for Russia to properly compete with the United States. I will say that um, Russia's military-industrial complex is vastly let me, let me stick a cap. Let me stick a caveat on that though. That the ship has sailed for it for russia to compete on its own as the center mm. of like the of a, like a, a dipole society right like it's yeah. not if it's going to be anyone let's be let's be real here it's going to be headed by china russia along for the ride russia's hope is to be what britain was to america during the cold war yeah sort of along for the ride helping out and, and reaping the benefits. and you get you know britain had their little sphere in africa um and russia is going to get their little sphere in europe hopefully yeah. for them i guess um, and so I, I think if we're, if we're talking about sort of the functioning of states, um, we can talk a little bit about how the sort of, I guess, well, now we'll get into the meat of the episode, the, the Russian deep state. And we can talk a little bit about the FSB and about oh, their, their actions. Well, so the USSR, right, infamously and according to sort of popular myth, always spied on its citizens it had kgb agents everywhere always that would yeah that would that would report you for for being counter-revolutionary or whatever i mean there's periods of soviet history where it it, that you know was was close to the truth yeah but it it was not the orwellian nightmare that popular history specifically popular american history likes to paint as Mm -hmm. so 
With that in mind, the USSR had one KGB agent for every 428 civilians, which if you think about it, that's pretty insane. That's a lot. If you go go to a concert of 2,000 people and you've got roughly four or five like Spy. salaried salaried spies watching, watching everything yeah. there. Um, and so, you know, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Russian Federation and its FSB, the Russian Federation has one FSB agent for every 297 Russian Federation um, citizens. That's close to twice as many proportionally. That is, that is almost twice as many. So when we talk about, you know, we're not – I, for one, am not a Russian Federation dick rider, unlike a lot of people on Twitter. Yeah. Um, but, you know, when we're talking about – the the russian federation i mean you have to understand it's it's a it's a shit show yeah like it's it is not a nice place to be in many ways i think you can probably say it's a like product of necessity in many ways yeah but i I would also say that i know many people like i know one of my one of my mutuals on twitter is on the run from the FSB right now, yeah, because she was at a pro an anti like anti Ukraine war protest. Mm. So it, it you know it's it is if any form of the Russian state ever has been that sort of Orwellian nightmare that everyone loves to paint it as, yeah, it's Russia. It's this one. It's the it's, Russian Federation. It's the Russian Federation, unless you wanna you wanna really throw it back to like um, pre pre nineteen oh five reforms in uh under under the SAR. And I wouldn't even say that because I mean it's so much easier to go into sort of an internal exile and write whatever you want and publish it, you know, secretly in in that place. Like obviously it's like way harder to track people. It's way easier yeah. to assume a, a secret identity. And also like let's be fair, you know, if you're a Russian in nineteen oh five or nineteen oh four or whatever and you write something like, Oh yeah, we need, you know, a, a liberal revolution and we need to give peasants land and also i hate the czar you can say okay i've I've published this now i'm going to go to britain i'll be safe you can't do that in russia they're very famous for killing dissidents abroad yeah um oh my god i I, is it lit livenenko oh that guy's a fucked up figure and he actually comes right to to play uh but but what i'm what i'm getting at is what i'm getting at is they will get you overseas yeah like it you're you know that's and that's just kind of the world we live in now. I mean, that ties back into the this idea of a deep state that doesn't necessarily care that much about things like the law, especially when it comes to borders mm-hmm. and where you're supposed to operate. I mean, if you think that the CIA sticks to its mandate to not operate it, it within the borders of the United States, I have a fucking bridge to sell you. Yeah, like, you know, let's be real here. All of this shit is extra legal because it doesn't matter. Yeah. Like they can do it and they can get away with it. So why wouldn't they? Um, so let's yeah, yeah get it's the same with it's the same with insert CIA conspiracy theory here you know yeah. they can do it because they can and they can get away with it yeah. and it doesn't matter if you think that they've done it mm-hmm. because they've already done it so yeah with these uh, apartment bombings it's the view of some I will say some not all there are a lot of countervailing views that this actually was uh, Chechens and Dagestanis that did these spearheaded by the American neoconservative author David Satter that these bombings were a false flag operation active measures, if you will, uh, to remove the increasingly unpopular President Yeltsin, who was facing criminal investigations at the time, 
uh, and replace him with somebody who could maintain the existing oligarchic order in Russia. Again, as we said, not that Putin did. Um, but the bombings allowed the government to sort of finally solve the, quote, Chechen problem. Um, you know, before the bombing, about two-thirds of Russians were actually at the point where they said, just let the Chechens go and have their own country because we can't be bothered to deal with this anymore. Sort of like how many English people are getting with the Scots at this point. Um, yeah, it's like, hey, if you guys want to go, you can go. It's fine. But like, I, I, yeah, I can't like, be bothered to spend all this money. I, to keep I think, in. yeah, especially especially given like the the context of the apartment bombings and how you know the there was an invasion into into Dagestan and then it was kind of oh uh, well you know why why shouldn't you know we've routed them why shouldn't we let them exist and then right away there's apartment bombings n not only in Dagestan but you know in, in Moscow. Moscow and all of a sudden you have like a, a casus belli for an actual invasion and occupation of che of Chechnya. Yeah. Um, right. Like it, it very much follows uh, a playbook of, well, we're losing support for this war, and then oh, would you look at that? Oh, well, you know, we, we're, now we're, we have to win it. We fought this. We fought this defensive operation, and now oh, would you look at that? There's a terrorist attack on home soil, and then, now we have to go over there and, and bomb and you know bomb them into the Stone Age. And then of course, it so also I, puts I don't want to Siloviki in power. I, you know, I'm I'm alluding to something here. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Of but course, of course. <laughs> right, hmm. I I think it's 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 very much just how how these things go. Yeah. Right. If you're looking at it, well, you know, you, you obviously can wage an unpopular war. It's been done. Not a lot of them have been won, but I mean, with, for example, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, it's kind of like you leave and everyone's like, well, why were we there in the first place? Yeah. But at the start of it, Everyone's you know, like, in, in, in this occupation, yeah. it's like, of course we have to, we, we have to be there. And then you can maintain that state of perpetual war for as long as you need. Yeah. So I, I think like it, it makes sense either way whether or not they were some sort of fsb op i mean yeah you know i i'm metaphorically here i'm looking you know to my left and to my right and i'm seeing who i'm agreeing with here on if it's an fsb op or not and i'm not loving it but yeah yeah I was gonna say at that. the end of the day at the end of the day it's like that's how you maintain like control of a population yeah so is, is by is by actively threatening them yeah, so this uh, FSB defector that you were talking about, Litvinenko, uh, that this was his big thing. I mean, he also claimed that Putin is a pedophile or whatever. Like, uh, his contemporaries always criticized him when he came to Britain and defected as never knowing the difference between what is, like, genuine intelligence and, like, genuine leaking and what is just going to help his cause. Um, yeah. So he well, had, a, he mean... had a, a, a loose grasp on the truth. But this was his big thing, and a bunch of other people talk about it. And yeah, as Declan says, like, it's all American politicians, like Marco Rubio, and like conservative journalists who still talk about it. And so, like, seeing who's on this side, as Declan says, makes me think the whole thing is BS. But again, they were literally caught red-handed. Um, and the Russian government has been very thorough at suppressing investigations into the bombings. And the most sus thing is that a Freedom of Information Act U.S. State Department document essentially said that their contacts in Russia believed that the bombings were suspicious. But they constantly, the Americans consistently refused to release their findings, their full findings, for fear of, quote, friction with the government of the Russian Federation. 
As a side note, I think it would be very funny if uh, America, because of like the war, and now that you know we're literally at war with Russia, uh, did release their documents on this, which pretty clearly says the SSB was behind it, um, and then Russia released their 9-11 documents. <laughs> I think that would be pretty funny. <laughs> um, so... Like, yeah, look, like, I, I hate to sound like I'm losing my mind in, in the conspiracies here, but I think, like, at the end of the day, whether or not these apartment bombings were an FSB op, whether or not they were allowed to happen, which is sort of where I stand on a lot of false flag things. Yeah, just right? the like, stuff that was allowed to happen, yeah, yeah. Right, you just, you find out that this is a plan and you just either let it happen or intercept at the last moment and, and then you're a hero. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so... I don't know. It, it's obviously it's not the kind of thing that we're going to have the truth on. I mean, we're not we're not journalists here, folks. We're not making a claim any in either in either direction. It's just there's a lot of eyebrow raising things in this story. And, you know, if you, you dive enough into recent United States, um, like a similar history of the United States in recent years, you get the same kind of eyebrow raising moments. Yeah. And especially because both of those states were states that are like consistently on the verge of collapse um, yeah like it, they, it's they just sort of, it's, they it's, start getting desperate we really wish we had more for you here than well here's a thing that happened and here are some things that point to one conclusion here are some things that point to the other make of it what you will but i think that's that's really what we're trying to do here and i think like you know we can we can talk a little bit about the wagner group which i guess is the most Besides the FSB, it's probably the most well-known element of the Russian deep state. Yeah. Um, you know, they're they're a mercenary group. Um, you know, in the sort of popular conception, on on par with you know Blackwater, um, right? Like a private military contractor that is you know exclusively contracted to the Russian military. And close ties to Putin. Um, yeah. Very close ties to Putin. So it's sort of referred to almost as like Putin's private army, which I I don't think is necessarily far from the oh, truth. Like I think just, but it implies a sort of discipline that isn't really there. Yeah. It's not as though these are his Praetorian guard. They're just sort of the guys that he, he uses. You know, for like he uses to get so yeah, I'm sure you've heard yeah. of this Wagner group. And I just want to say that the Wagner group does not exist. It's a front. Like, there are countless different groups. And we're, again, we're going to do a full episode about these guys. But i guess what people often call it in russia in ukraine like the places where these people are encountered they call them the orchestra um because yeah. they orchestrate which things. is yeah that's that is that sounds like something straight out of a cod camp but it's like sorry, sick. it but, is kind of cool like and and so you know obviously we don't have high level russian federation security clearance so the most that we can say is that we know that they're a group of paramilitary organizations that function, you know, in terms of chain of command and, and grouping very much like the American private military sector, mm-hmm. right? How a lot of the time it will be someone who just got back from a tour of duty in the military proper. And then, you know, they get to add an extra zero under their salary yeah. and work for, you know, going to the private sector, like everything else, um, you know? Yeah. And, you know, they they it's a range of organizations it's not just like a you know black ops team like there there are and this is undeniable far-right paramilitaries in the wagner group and you know the orchestra um but there's also like 
in terms of in terms of the numbers they're putting up some of the best urban in, assault infantry in the world it's very much it's a strong force and if you were as you know tuned into the early days of the uh, ukraine invasion as malcolm was um you would know that they were they were the guys that got sent in to clear out the cities for that initial yeah the initial assault so which make again make of that what you will in ukraine like okay so the reason why I think obviously like they're they're well trained they're like dedicated guys and, and things like that which obviously helps but I think another reason why they are so good um, at this type of thing uh, is I mean yes they have a lot of combat experience a lot more combat experience than a normal Russian soldier would but also like they are just so much less discretion than your average Russian soldier so like I have heard from actual Russian soldiers that in like the first days of the invasion they were still so sort of set on a political victory that their rules of engagement involve like you don't even fire first at ukrainian soldiers which is like crazy that's you're in a war and you're not even supposed to fire first at ukrainian soldiers wagner they got none of that like they don't care about that they don't care about civilians they just they go in and they do what has to be done um right in the same like you essentially you can spend all day just pouring over Oh, here's something that like a single Blackwater guy got prosecuted for. Go into the orchestra. There's an, the exact same thing. Yeah, right. It, it's again in 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 the American military, they have the good grace to sort of let the private military corporations run their run their ops in like Mali and Somalia, and you know, Africom is essentially managing the the PMCs, mm-hmm. and then they have their sort of their main lineup of wars yeah that their their main forces are in but again in russia that line is just not there because it's another inefficiency essentially yeah Russia. why not in, why not just why not just integrate your paramilitary yeah your your private militaries your paramilitary orgs like your local ones why not just roll them right into your own chain of command yeah and have and fit them in and somewhere. like i want to note that like i'm sure that the the mentality of a guy in you know, maybe if he's not in the, the Rusik Battalion or some of these other, like, really fucked up far-right ones, like, they probably consider themselves Russian soldiers, just in a different way. So, yeah. like, in Syria, uh, Russia's saving of Assad's government and the destruction of ISIS was, like, as a whole, it was performed by Russian aerospace forces and conductors on the ground. Conductors being, you know, con- uh, or musicians, what they call Mem- individual members. Members of the orchestra. Um, so, like, all these stories of, like, incredible br- bravery, like, people calling in airstrikes in their own positions... Uh, when they're surrounded or, like, fighting their way through ISIS-held territories with just their knife after they run out of ammo or whatever. Like, all that is, like, orchestra guys. Um, because a lot of... I mean, that and that's also where a lot of the coverage of, like, how unprepared the Russian military proper is, is, you know, following the the early 90s model, they privatized all of it. Yeah. Because they, because they don't necessarily need their public military industrial complex in the same way that the u.s needs it and and in the same way that it's rolled into the culture i mean they're they're both similarly militaristic but again when you don't have that divide between your pmcs and your your rank and file you don't need to make sure that your rank and file your like you know your your government paychecks are uh are equipped the same way yeah whereas in the united states it's so bloated partially because they need all of their guys to have the same tech. Yeah, and it's like every single part of the uh, American military has its own Air Force. 
Yeah. It, so when when we're talking about how the orchestra is is operating, they are essentially you know, you do a tour of duty as a rank and file and then immediately you go to one of the one of the Or they just take you right over to prison. Um, yeah. So Right, I'm saying for for the rank and oh, file, yeah. that's why like they're recruiting from pri- like from prisons. Yeah. And you know, that for for Western journalists that gets coverage because it's like, oh, it means Russia's gonna lose because they're having to go to their prisons. Yeah, of course Ukraine's been doing that since day one, so Yeah. You know, we're not. Yeah, um, this is not. This is not a Russo-Ukraine yeah, no, war uh, episode. But I, I think, like, but yeah. So, like, the and and I also like know that like the fact that these guys aren't like an official black ops group or you know like a Russian special operations group, it allows them to get away with a lot. Um, so in Syria, like there were regular clashes between conductors on like the side of the Assad regime and sometimes loosely on the side of the Syrian Democratic Forces on one side, and like American soldiers on the other side occupying oil wells um as well as like regular clashes between the orchestra and like turkish forces but again because they're like officially under the private military contract that's that's also it's also because you know i i don't want to say it's unique to the syrian war civil war how much of a mess it was but i think that that's a a sort of one-off thing where all parties involved realize that this could have been really fucking bad yeah so that's why they're you know that's i guess part of why NATO is keeping Ukraine sort of at arm's reach and throwing money at them instead of sending anyone in anyone in in significant mm-hmm. numbers like the U.S. did in Syria. Yeah, I mean, I am actually of like, the opinion essentially that NATO is at war with Russia, but right. But I, I think yeah, letting Ukraine fight the war yeah, yeah, yeah. makes more sense for all parties involved. Yeah, and also like um, a lot of these people are like fucking nasty. It's as sort of as we said. Oh, so like in yeah, Syria, no, I'm not. We're, we're, yeah, in, we are kind of glossing over like. Again, I, I mentioned it earlier that any bad thing you can think of the U.S. military or any sort of NATO or U.N. force doing, the orchestra has absolutely done that and possibly Yeah, worse. so like in Syria, a video once emerged of them bludgeoning an ISIS POW to death. Um, it's apparently an orchestra policy to shoot deserters. I don't know. Like, I couldn't find any reliable instances of this happening. Well, But, like, yeah. I did see a video of a recruiter in a Russian prison, and he basically said, like, look, you know, we send you to Ukraine. You fight for six months. You get, you know, amnesty, but if you try and run, we kill you. Um, so you never know, right? Uh, so, yeah, in the war in Ukraine, sort of as I said, they're often shock troops and a bit of a spearship for urban warfare because, as I said, they've got less uh, discretion than Russian troops. Um, you know, Russian right. troops are— We're not, we're not making a value judgment Not making a value on, judgment, you know, but yeah. like any—and I'm sure that the, the rules were similar even if they weren't followed for Americans in Iraq. There were, like, velvet glove rules. Like, you don't— you know, you want to avoid catching civilians in the crossfire, but, like, local commanders will often use the orchestra for harder jobs simply because they care less and also don't have to follow Russian MOD orders to the same extent. Uh, this is probably also true of what, like, the Chechens and other reg- Russian Red Cross forces. I don't know. Yeah, the, the, guys, the guys where they, you know, give them a BMP or five and then tell them to go take a test. Exactly. And if it works, great. If it doesn't, well, you know. Yeah, and so in Sudan, Mali, the Central African Republic, uh, orchestra forces have worked on behalf of those countries' respective governments to fight against Islamist insurgency, often with a higher degree of effectiveness than either the American AFRICOM or, like, French forces that they're replacing. Again, real combat experience in places like Syria and Ukraine, as well as potentially less diplomatic pressure to hold back. Also alleged that the orchestra helped the breakaway Republic of Artsakh hold off overwhelming Azeri forces in the 2020 war, 
uh, for a while, and that their presence scared Azerbaijan into signing a peace deal before capturing all of ours back. And also, finally, it is pretty wild that we started working on this. Like, you know, not I'm, I don't want to say like we've been ha we've had this idea in our head since that first uh, Artsakh war. But I think it is pretty interesting that it's now, you know, in the process of starting yeah. again. Oh, yeah. Well, and also, let's just say the only guys worse than uh, than orchestra guys are normal Azeri soldiers. Um, and, yeah, if you remember our episode a few months ago about the coup in Burkina Faso uh, and how popular it was and how they were inviting the Russians in, those Russians they're inviting in, orchestra. And allegedly they might have also had a hand in the coup. One more final interesting use. This one really gets my gears turning that this one because you know whenever there are discussions of crimea of you know ukraine russian relations the two years that come up is 2022 and 2014 mm -hmm. that's all you get yeah right there's a there's complete memory hole of the eight years from, from of those eight years but so on the 20th of November in 2017, Igor, can you, can you Igor bail me out here? Ploitnitsky, president of the, of the Luhansk People's Republic, ordered the dismissal of his interior minister, Igor Kornet, who was apparently getting ready to try and take his job. Pretty standard. Um, if you want one of your underlings gone, you say they're plotting against you. It's classic. Maybe he was. But Kornet, maybe he was. Who knows? Again, chalk it up to who knows. Cornet refused, and amid a political standoff, armed men without the markings of either the LPM, the Lugansk People's Militia, or the Russian military, took up positions in the center of the city of Luhansk on the 21st. Ploitnitsky flees to Moscow, denounces a coup. Meanwhile, on the 23rd, the prosecutor general of the Luhansk People's Republic is arrested. On the 24th, a third figure shows up, the LPR's security minister, Leonid Pasechnik, announces that Ploitnitsky has resigned for, quote, health reasons, which, again, another classic, I don't, I don't want to generalize and say classic Eastern European move, but this was done in East Germany. It was done in many, many of the Soviet republics, just because it's very easy when you have an older guy in office to say, oh, he's gone for health reasons. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's just basically what you do when you're, like, they're basically just saying, like, yeah, this guy's gone. And I will note that since this point, Ploitnitsky disappeared. Like, I don't, I haven't seen anything from him or about him uh, since 2017, five years ago. Uh, he's just, yeah, who knows? So probably dead. But maybe, maybe he's in a prison somewhere. Maybe he's just keeping his head low. Who knows? Um, so Pesechnik now becomes president, right? So you get this political standoff between Igor Ploitnitsky and Igor Kornet, both sort of vying for the position one of them already has it of course and then unarmed guys or sorry unmarked armed guys uh show up in the middle of the city of lugansk um you know they shut down schools and whatever and then all of a sudden this third guy the security minister now he's going to be president and it's him pasechnik who takes the harder line on lugansk kiev policy so rather so just a uh, side note like initially the goal of the donetsk and lugansk people's republic was not independence, it was to essentially force Kiev to do constitutional reform, uh, to reintegrate in a very loose federation, uh, and essentially have, essentially right, turn them in yeah, have let them sort of 
autonomy rather than independence. Yeah, it's sort of like undo the easiest poli sci way to, to yeah, sum undo that up. the Maidan essentially. Um, so this was their goal, but if Pasechnik, who takes the harder line uh, in Lugansk Kiev policy, um, he is the president who sort of fully declares independence. He is the president who gets Putin to recognize his independence and request the help of the Russian Federation in quote deoccupying the Ukrainian held parts of Lugansk. Uh, Oblast. Kornet does remain interior minister, but it's Pasechnik who is the guy who brings Lugansk, as well as, you know, Donetsk and Russia, uh, to war with Ukraine. Um, and so we'll go over the orchestra in more detail in a later episode. Yeah. Um, but that's sort of a general but overview. I know it's a bit of a longer episode this is, today, this is This is your, this is your, your taste. Yeah. Your, this is our little rundown of everything. I mean, next episode... Um, we'll get into the collapse of the USSR, which we talked about a little bit today. Um, sort of, yeah, how did Russia get here? What what happened in the 10 years, almost 10 years, preceding Vladimir Putin becoming prime minister to, you know, put Russia in this position? Um, and then, you know, we'll we'll have some more for you next time. But I think until then, I've been Declan. I've been Malcolm. This has been your Juno. Thanks for listening.